We begin with the top story in the UK. The UK economy's surprise acceleration has paved the way for the Bank of England to raise interest rates for the first time in over a decade next week. The pound rose and investors increased bets on a tightening of monetary policy on November 2nd after initial data showed 0.4% growth last quarter, more than economists forecast and the fastest pace of the year so far. This is the last major economic report that Bank of England officials will get on the health of the economy before their crucial meeting. To discuss with me for the next 30 minutes or so, Alistair McCaig, Head of Investment Management at Fern Wealth and Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist for Bloomberg's Markets Live blog. Joining me out of Berlin, Jensen great to catch up with you. Let's begin with you, Mr. Jones. Welcome back to the program after great taking to be here. so many weeks off. Where did you go, sir, on vacation? Well, I, last week I was in Berlin. We had, I had my in-laws in town. My wife and I and daughter were, Doesn't were tour sound guides. Like a vacation. Uh, no, we did a lot of DIY as well. We've just moved into a new apartment, John, so okay. it wasn't really a vacation at all. It was half work, half pleasure, I would say. A, a new apartment, and I wonder whether you'll be exposed to, um, to higher rates. Probably not from the ECB. Um, if you had that mortgage in sterling from a UK lender, would you be anticipating higher rates, Richard Jones? Yeah, I think uh, you know the bank has very, pretty much told us they're going to hike rates next week. Uh, the market is pricing it in. We're 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 well north of eighty uh, percent. You give a you give a central bank an opportunity to raise rates, they're going to do it. So I think I think that's you know if they were minded to raise rates before today's data, today's data will definitely not yeah. have changed their mind. In fact, it would have strengthened their resolve. So I think the surprise now will be if they don't raise rates next week. It's it's almost a nailed on proposition. What about for you, Alison McKagan? Nailed on proposition for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, with, as uh, as Richard was saying, there over eighty percent uh, market being factored in that we're going to see a rate rise next uh, next week. Um, it's only going to be a quarter of a percent, but um, psychologically, uh, that's a, a decade's worth of uh, um, stability and reduction that's going to be uh, reversed. So, uh, quite quite some statement. How much more there might be behind that, though, I'm still very cynical as to uh, what might be materialising. It does very much feel like it's uh, an opportunity to, uh, to to sort of stake a turn point uh, rather than the the start of a, a tranche of, uh, of uh, rate rises. I think it might be one and done for some time. So Rich, I've got a fantastically engaged following on Twitter. I don't particularly like the platform that much, but my followers usually send me some pretty good stuff every now and then. And someone reached out to me today with a screenshot of Google and basically told me that if you enter unreliable boyfriend into Google and go to images you will see Governor Carney dominates the results in the images section of Google. So I urge our listeners to go away and do that. Open up Google, enter Unreliable Boyfriend, then go to images and you'll see Governor Carney. There's a reason for this, Rich. It's because we've seen this movie before with the Bank of England. They've talked about raising interest rates. Then they didn't. Then Governor Carney was called by a UK lawmaker at the time an unreliable boyfriend. Now, is he going to be an unreliable boyfriend again? Well, uh, yes and no. No in that in that they will raise rates and they've been talking about it. And I think next week it would be absolutely, that'd be gobsmacked if they didn't raise rates. But yes, I would say that there's still, you could still label him a non-reliable boyfriend because if you rewind about six months ago, um, the kind of rhetoric that we were getting out of the bank was that given Brexit uncertainty, given the fact that we had negative real wages in, in, in the UK, it it was looking pretty challenging and and they were probably going to keep rates on hold they were they were a little bit concerned that there was nothing priced in but but the rhetoric was still very much of an on hold bank of england that changed over the summer 
I'm not quite sure what it was that, that changed the bank's thinking, but something did. So in the space of six months, we've had, I think, a pretty a pretty sharp shift in what the bank's reaction function is or the way they are reacting to the data, the way they're reacting to, to everything in, in the sort of macro backdrop. So no, he won't be the unreliable boyfriend in, in saying up until you know over the past few months they'll raise rates because they will next week. But if you take a longer term perspective, I'd say that probably might still stick. Help me out with this. Sterling's back up to 132 at a nice little rip higher. Where next, Rich? What are the forces that are going to be driving Sterling beyond just a single rate hike from the Bank of England? Because the data, let's admit it, 0.4% is better than expected, but it's not stellar by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's not. And that's that's the thing is we have, we've had pretty low expectations for UK data. And yeah, it's beat those low expectations, but it's not exactly hitting the cover off the ball with 0.4% in the quarter. And and you know, there's there's speculation in the market that that's actually going to be revised lower in the in the second and third readings that we see of the GDP. Um, I I still think that politics are going to be the big driver here, John. And yeah, we've got a little bit of a jump in in the pound um, on the back of this better data, but it doesn't seem like it's something that's a game changer here. I think the pound will still be subject to the 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 toing and froing politically, and that includes you know what's going on in Germany with the formation of a coalition, what's going on in Catalonia, we know that that's a quite a volatile situation. But realistically, longer term, what happens in the Brexit talks is what's going to drive the value of the pound. Yeah. And and there's a lot of uncertainty there. I don't know anybody who can say, hand on heart, they know exactly how that's going to pan out. Nobody does. Alice McKay, I've got Euro sterling at 89 pence. Um, what side of the trade do you want to be on? I'm still uh, still a fan of Euro. I, I think this is very much one and done. This is an opportunity to put a, a peg in the ground, as it were, get the, the psychological we finally raised rates out the way, because there might not be as opportune a moment uh, in the you know the next five or six months. Um, so uh, utilize this opportunity while while the data is giving you the excuse. I kind of see that as the the, the landscape at the moment. There was a moment in 2014 they didn't take it. There was a moment in 2015. They didn't take it, and you just wonder how it's come to this, where we get 0.4% GDP growth and we anticipate the first interest rate hike in over a decade from the Bank of England. It's a story we'll continue to cover right here on Bloomberg Radio. Alistair McKay, Head of Investment Management at FirmWealth, alongside Richard Jones, FX and Race Strategist for the Bloomberg Markets Live blog. Up next on the programme, the President of the United States walks into a room and asks Republican senators who they like and to put their hands up. Who's going to be the next Fed chair? Hands up if you like John Taylor. I'll give you some of the results, the unofficial ones. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. So picture the scene. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, walks into a room full of Senate Republicans. They think they might be talking about tax cuts and tax reforms, but ultimately the President asks them, for a show of hands in support of potential nominees for the next Fed chair. Now, Senator Tim Scott said the president asked specifically about Stanford University economist John Taylor and Federal Reserve Governor Jerome Powell. He also mentioned the current Fed chair, Janet Yellen, in this discussion. Now, we also understand that for some senators, they didn't think this was appropriate and didn't play the game. We also understand that from those that did, it may be John Taylor that got the nod. 
Alice McKay, you look at the way we are almost selecting a la, I don't know, a popular game show um, in the next Fed chair. How do you follow this in the markets? Um, well, I, I think <laughs> with a bit of nerves is undoubtedly the way. I think uh, he, he's not a career politician and his methodology of decision making certainly has not followed the the, the, the well-trodden, beaten path that we've maybe seen in years gone by. Uh, you know, a show of hands might mean nothing to the people who are in the room, but it might mean the world to, uh, to uh, President Trump. And, you know, I think, you know, John Taylor, if if that were to be the case, uh, the Taylor rules are pretty uh, systematic um, piece of kit. And, and, and if you could see the Fed losing a little bit of their independence. That, that sort of uh, I know that um, uh, data driven decisions has, has been the, the sort of key watchword. But they've, the interpretation of that data has offered uh, a little bit of wriggle room over the, the last uh, tenure of Fed chair Janet Yellen. And, and she's utilized that to, to her and the U.S. economy's benefits. You, you think that this would be a, possibly a faster path to rate hikes? Um, does it mean anything? Well, it shouldn't do, but uh, maybe it does psychologically just plant a little bit stronger seed in, in his mind. Richard Jones, it's Federal Reserve The Apprentice, uh, and I don't know how to follow it anymore. Yeah, well, you know what really struck me is that with all this, and, and I just think it's surreal, the whole idea that the president were going to remove Republican senators and ask for a show of hands. I, I don't know, it just strikes me as bizarre, but but there you go. Uh, but there's a great story on the Bloomberg Terminal today by Craig Torres and Jennifer Jacobs saying that actually Donald Trump might be leaning towards reappointing Janet Yellen back to, to that post. And yeah. And, you know, it's it's just... I think we've had so many iterations. Oh, okay. Uh, Taylor is the favorite. No, Powell's the favorite. And now, it, wouldn't it be something if we just came full circle and Janet Yellen was reappointed as as, as chair of the Federal ah, Reserve? But you, but you use an important word there, Richard Jones, and it's the word reappointed. Now, she might be nominated for another term. I wonder whether those senators that he asked to put their hands up on who they liked would actually reappoint her. I think it would be... Uh, pretty disruptive for markets, for, for, for the whole U.S. economy, if Janet Yellen were proposed by the president and, and was not approved by, by Congress. I think that would, be, that would be a shock, unlike shocks we've seen up to now. It would be huge, and I don't yeah. think that Congress would do that. Alistair McKay, do, do you foresee a situation where the Fed chair nominee is not the Senate-confirmed Fed chair come next year? Well, look, I, I don't think with, with the way things have gone panned out in the last year of his presidency, nothing I think is going to be too surprising as to what might materialise. I think if she is uh, one of the nominees, um, it was it was always Donald Trump who was arguably the, the loudest um, uh, vocal f uh, for looking for change. Um, and I don't think it was necessarily an opinion shared by the vast majority of the Republican Party. So if she were to, to, to be put back up there and he were to at least give a, a sort of passing approval, um, I, I think, you know, you'd, you'd expect that to, you know, stability and, uh, you know, a known quantity, uh, certainly what the markets would like. Um, and let's face it, a lot of the, the decision making when it comes to important positions has backfired. Alison McCaig, Head of Investment Management at Firm Wealth, alongside Richard Jones of Bloomberg. Sticking with me next up on the programme is the bond bull market of 30 years coming to an end. Jeff Gunlack of Double Line says this is the moment of truth. We'll get into that next. This is Bloomberg Radio. 
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. So the bond market, where there's a sell-off that's gained some momentum over the last week or so, Treasury yields back in September were as low as 2.01%. Right now, they're trading around 2.45%. And we've seen some of the highest levels through this session today since March of this year. After we passed through 2.4%, Double Line Capital CIO Jeffrey Gunlag had a warning for bond bears yesterday. He tweeted out, the moment of truth has arrived for the secular bond bull market. The need to start rallying effective immediately or obituaries need to be written now richard jones if you're following the bond market and for the bears out there that have been waiting for this elusive end to the bond bull market why is 2.4 percent so important why are we at these kind of critical levels now for for something that's been taking place for 30 years well john i I, you know I, i remember earlier in the year in january you know 2.6 percent was going to be a tipping point for global bonds and uh you know you get through 2.6 percent and and we're just going to fly higher so that was in january that was i think bill gross and i think jeff i think uh, good luck was talking about three percent you know leading to six percent yield so when what happened after that two months later we were at 2.65 percent and then we then we collapsed 65 basis points so I don't know. These lines in the sand that the good and the great draw are, are, are interesting talking points, but color me skeptical about this being necessarily, you know, the end of the bond bull market. I think that I think that we we've this just seems like the latest yield level where where people are pointing to and saying, Oh, if it goes through here, we're really got it's got legs and it's gonna motor higher. We we were at two point six earlier in the year. That was the tipping point and it didn't happen. So, you know, I'm not saying that we can't push higher from here, but I don't think it's gonna be a one way bet. Al? Yeah, quite right. It isn't going to be a one-way bet. There's a heck of a lot of uh, things, issues that are going to materialise. Uh, from, certainly, from a, the technical analysts out there, it, it is a it is a serious line in the sand. It's sort of it has been a bit nosebleed territory since March, basically, in 2017. So, uh, you know, psychologically, it, it's a it's an issue. It's drawn a lot of attention. Uh, making uh, you know six percent uh, assessments for for year 2020. I mean, you just need to look in the next number number of months, weeks, even as to what's going to materialise. Who's going to be the head uh, head of the, the Fed, latest Fed chair. What what are the ECB going to do in regards to tapering their quantitative easing? You know, are the Bank of England going to uh, change their interest rates as well? I, I think there's a lot of um, major global um, sentiment um, as far as central banks is concerned to uh, to to become a bit clearer, more convincing yeah. um, uh, to, before we start to make these major major long term calls. Who holds the key to the bond bull market? Is it President Draghi, Rich? Or is it Fed Chair Janet Yellen, or whoever the Fed Chair might be? I think they both do, John. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up you bring up Draghi and the ECB. You remember the Sintra speech in the summer, and and it, for the first time in a long time, we had bond yields, ten-year bond yields above fifty, and you know the break above fifty was going to lead to much higher yields. And yeah, we managed to push up to about. 60 and small change but then we just traded sideways since then and it's sort of like everybody who's trying to play breakouts in these markets are getting burned because they're not breakout markets they're 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 rangy they're choppy they're awful to trade but we're not really breaking out and and it's going to take something fundamental to shift that i think that central banks are not in the game 
of, of, of making these kind of fundamental shifts without giving markets so much warning so that they're, they're well digested, they're well telegraphed. And, and I think, you know, Draghi and Yellen are, are, are old pros at this game and they're going to carry on playing the same way that they have been so that there'll be no shocks. And, and I'm not sure that we're just going to, that we're going to get the breakout to the upside because as Alistair says, there's just so much uncertainty out there. The ECB, of course, begins its meeting today, concludes tomorrow. I'm sure they're having a nice meal over in Frankfurt at the moment, um, prepping to do what they may or may not do with the asset purchase program. Al, what is the base case going into tomorrow's event? Well, I, I think we've we've certainly um, we've reached the turning point again with uh, with the ECB. They, they've reduced, you know, they started off at sixty billion on a monthly basis, moved that up to eighty, then moved the eighty back down to sixty, extended the timelines, but now it looks like a proper cut rather than a, a, a correction back to where they started, as it were. I think there's a lot of expectation that we're going to see the the, the, bu- the monthly budget cut quite aggressively um, in comparatively comparative terms. And I think that that's, you know, that is quite a, a quite a key change yeah. in mentality and, and policy. Rich, for anyone that's following the bond market, they'll be familiar with the German-US two-year spread. For anyone that doesn't follow the bond market, I'll explain very quickly. You have two-year government bonds in the United States and two-year government bonds in Germany. And the difference between what they yield, the spread, so to speak, is 229 basis points. So around about 23 now, the difference between the borrowing costs for the US and Germany on that particular maturity, that is the widest, the biggest difference that we've seen for two-year notes since the 1990s, Bund yields below treasuries. Rich, that spread, what does that capture for you? And where are we going from here? Is there any more oxygen left in this huge momentum trade that really kicked off over the last several years. Well, do you know what the really interesting thing about that particular uh, metric is, John, is that euro dollars on a 118 handle. It should probably be a heck of a lot lower than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were trading at what, 10, sub 105 at the beginning of the year, and we've just motored higher. Now we're a couple of percent off the highs, but but it's really resilient. The euro is strong, and, and it's, it's, it's strong because the actual fundamentals underlying the economy are strong. And, and you know, I think... It, Given that dynamic that you described in the in the two year differential, the euro has no business being here, and yet it is. I think that's the interesting thing is it tells us a story that euro strength this time has legs, and it's it's holding in despite rate differentials not being in their favor, and and Mario Draghi, as as Alistair just said, might just give that that uh, that spread a bit of a boost even further in the euro's favor. Gents, it's great to catch up with you as always on what could be another pivotal week for European Central Bank. And of course, that decision comes tomorrow at 12.45 UK time. And then at 1.30 UK time, the news conference with President Draghi begins. We'll bring you all of that in full right here on Bloomberg Radio and of course on Bloomberg TV as well. To Richard Jones, it's great to have you back, mate. I hope the in-laws have got away safely and you've got some freedom again. Um, I'm sure you don't feel that way and would never display those emotions publicly or air them right here on Bloomberg Radio. And to Alistair McKay, Firm Wealth, thank you, sir. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. 
I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio from the London close to the US trade in action. Let's get you that close and that action. The FTSE 100 negative by over one full percentage point at the close. Equities across Europe a little weaker as well going into the ECB decision tomorrow. The DAX was down about a half of 1%. The story in the FX market, sterling just a whole lot stronger. It's the big outperformer in the G10 space today off the back of some GDP figures that came in better than anticipated. It means sterling trades higher by nine-tenths of 1%, a stronger pound against the dollar at 132.53, ahead of potentially the first interest rate hike in over a decade from the Bank of England, from Threadneedle Street. That might come next week. For the euro, well, euro-dollar trading as follows. German business confidence at a record high, supportive of a euro that goes back through a dollar eighteen cents. We're up four-tenths of 1% on that currency pair. In the bond market, the dollar's weaker even off the back of higher treasury yields. So treasuries are a little bit lower. Yields are pushing higher by a couple of basis points, just the one basis point now. We come off session highs at about 2.43% on a US 10-year. So that gives you a picture cross-asset of what's happening in financial markets today. I want to get you up to speed on some top stories and bring back in Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Got to begin with Brexit. Brexit Secretary David Davis says Brexit negotiations will go to the wire in a high-pressure game of brinkmanship that could deny British lawmakers the chance to vote on a final deal before the country leaves the bloc. Davis says the European Union is likely to stop the clock on the March 2019 deadline as the talks reach a climax at the last possible moment for striking an agreement. Preparing for the demise of Theresa May's conservative government, corporate Britain is building bridges to Labour Party leaders, and Labour is reciprocating. Opposition chief Jeremy Corbyn, an avowed socialist once derided as the man who would make Labour unelectable for a generation, has been invited to be a feature speaker at the annual conference of the Confederation for British Industry next month. And North Korea's UN ambassador is calling on the United Nations Security Council to urgently discuss the recent joint U.S. naval exercise near the Korean Peninsula, calling it part of preparations for a preemptive strike and nuclear war against his country. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you. Um, are you following this Chipotle story, Mike Regan? Because it's um, it's fascinating, to say the least. They, they blamed their bad earnings on avocado prices, hurricanes forcing restaurants to close, um, a novovirus outbreak in Virginia, and a PR nightmare when customers complained about rodents falling from a ceiling at a restaurant in Texas, <laughs> the stock's down 15%. Rodents falling from ceiling. That's, yeah. Well, now the stock's falling from the ceiling. But although my favorite story is piling on all of that, Duke basketball star uh, doesn't like the queso. We got a story on that. And apparently, <laughs> Grayson Allen, yes. Wait a second. Grayson That's Allen. what we got. A, okay, for our audience in London, guys, for our, for our listeners on Bloomberg Radio <laughs> in the capital of the UK. <laughs> You went there, so explain. All right. Well, first of all, I got to tell you, this guy Grayson Allen is famous in uh, the U.S. because he keeps tripping people on the basketball court. So I'm not sure why we care what he thinks about uh, about the queso, but he's he's gotten in a lot of trouble for uh, you know if uh, a player gets by him on defense, he just takes his foot out and trips him. So now he's tripping up Chipotle, and, and I'm just kind of okay. kidding. I, I think that is the least of their worries. Uh, but yeah, as you said. And uh, hey, look, you, you, people sort of roll their eyes when people blame weather uh, uh, for a sales weakness. Sometimes it's worthy of an eye roll. 
couple of hurricanes, I'll let them get away with it. But yeah. all the other stuff, I mean, the, the rotavirus, I mean, the, you know, these problems just aren't going away for Chipotle. They're, uh, they're not going anywhere, yeah. seemingly. Um, some other problems that aren't going away anytime soon. Republican Party infighting. At a time when GOP leadership really would quite like the attention on tax cuts and maybe tax reform, it's a spat between Republican senators who are retiring taking on the president in just a blistering attack in the last 24 hours. The first of which, of course, was someone we're familiar with, Senator Bob Corker. Take a listen to this. I've had private meetings with him, uh, dinners with him, I've played golf with him, I've had you know, multiple occasions where the staff has asked me to please intervene. He was getting ready to do something that was really off the tracks. And, and uh, look, I, I've seen no evolution in an upward way. I mean, as a matter of fact, I would say um, it appears to me that um, it's almost devolving. Senator Bob Corker is retiring at the end of his term. We typically view politicians through the prism of what do they need to do to get re-elected. Well, this guy has nothing to lose and he's going after the president, even though he's also a Republican. Well, another man that's also set to retire, he announced that in the last 24 hours as well, is Jeff Flake. And like Bob Corker, he had some stinging things to say about the president of the United States. If I have been critical... It is because I believe it is my obligation to do so. And as a matter and duty of conscience, the notion that one should stay silent and the, as the norms and values that keep America strong are undermined, and as the alliances and agreements that ensure the stability of the entire world are routinely threatened by the level of thought that goes into 140 characters. Dave Wilson, what a 24 hours for the Republican Party. Not much talk about tax cuts, a lot of talk about infighting. And let's be clear, for anyone who isn't knee-deep in the minutiae and the weeds of D.C. politics, it's pretty simple. There's a very small majority in the Senate to get this tax package through. If you lose even a couple Republican senators, we've got a problem, haven't we? Oh, <clears throat> there's no doubt we do. And you know, to some extent, you can say it was kind of highlighted uh, when there was a decision in the Senate yesterday about uh, a, a push to make it easier for customers to sue banks. That was basically a 50-50 vote. Vice President Mike Pence comes in, breaks the tie, as he can do, uh, because the vice president is basically uh, the, the presiding officer of the Senate. And so the limits uh, are, are maintained at their current level, so consumers don't get more right to sue. Uh, so it, it's just another example. I mean, we certainly saw it play out with the health care vote. Uh, you lose a few people along the way, and that's all it takes. And, you know, the idea that there's all this back and forth, I mean, really does raise the question, are people going to start actually voting their conscience, or are they going to vote the party line when it comes to the tax plan? Well, apparently, if you retire, you vote with your conscience, and if you <laughs> want to get reelected, you vote with the party line. At least that seems to be um, the direction of travel at this point. Mike Regan, we spend a lot of time asking investors, look at market pricing. Do you think it's dependent or independent of tax reform and tax cuts? And you'll get varying responses. Some people will say yes, absolutely, to a degree. Other people will say no, absolutely not. I look at this situation now, and at least the one thing I can say is even with this spat, even with a very small majority, even with the likelihood that some senators say no, we're not going to vote with the president or with the party on tax cuts, if it adds to the deficit, this market ain't budging in a big way. Well, it, it big's a relative term. I mean, in the quiet sort of half asleep market <laughs> we've been in, this is a pretty big move. We're, you know, 
looking at almost a 1% drop in the S&P 500. But you're right. I mean, it's it's obvious that tax reform is not the only thing driving the, the U.S. market higher. I mean, I do think there is a little downside if tax reform is completely off the table. Um, how big that downside is, is anyone's question. Maybe it is only a couple percentage points. Uh, I, I read a note from Goldman uh, a couple weeks ago, and they pegged it at, you know, it was, it was a few percentage points either way. It wasn't like, oh, here comes a bear market if we don't get yeah. tax reform. Um, so that seems about right to me. I mean, this spat has been going on for, for ages, and it happened yesterday, and the market closed at an all-time high. I can't keep up. Michael Regan, Dave Wilson sticking with me. Next up on the cable, one reason the uh, market is down is because Apple's getting hit. We'll bring you the why. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Mike Regan, you get the iPhone 10? No. No? no. Dave Wilson? Thinking about it. You're thinking I, about I it. I held <laughs> off on the iPhone 8 because uh, you, I knew I, the iPhone 10 was coming I down the line. We'll don't see. don't think you're the only one <laughs> that did that. I Although we did, uh, my daughter just turned 11. Yeah. All she wanted for her birthday was a dog and or a phone. Okay. An iPhone 10? Guess guess which one she got. What did she get? Guess which which one's easier to Uh, clean up after. A dog? (laughs) (laughs) She got the phone, but we got her an iPhone 7. And she was thrilled. Yeah. I bet she was thrilled. How old's your daughter? She's 11. She's 11. I I guess that's the right age for one. Yeah. I've I've heard of kids younger than 10 asking for iPhones. And I, I do wonder what's going on. We, uh, her oldest sister got hers at 11, so that kind of set the, uh, set the That sets the bar. Right. 11 years old yeah. and you get an iPhone in the, in the Regan in the household. House, yeah. Yeah. I, I asked the question about demand because the big concern is about supply, whether Apple will actually have enough iPhone 10s in time for the holiday season. Of course, Christmas and Thanksgiving coming up in the United States. The challenge was how to make this sophisticated phone, of course, which has advanced features such as facial recognition in large enough numbers. So you've got the Wall Street analysts and the fan blogs watching for signs that the company would stumble. Then Apple has a basic solution. It's told suppliers, according to people familiar with the matter, that they could reduce the accuracy of the facial recognition technology (laughs) to make it easier to manufacture. Of course, the real story would be degree to to what extent did they allow them to to reduce the accuracy but it does point to a movie that i've seen quite a few times now michael we come into a key quarter after an iphone launch and everyone sits there and says the supply constraints there's going to be problems and then they just knock it out of the park so why is this movie going to be any different well i'm not sure it will be um you know and it's this idea of scarcity with a new product tends to work in apple's favor i mean what happens when you don't have enough phones for everyone? You got lines around the block of, on first day, people camping out. Yeah, It gets all sorts of press, all sorts of free publicity for people camping out for this new thing. I mean, but this story is is fascinating on many levels. And shout out to Alex Webb in the, the beautiful city of London. Yes, there, great. And uh, Sam King and Soul for the, for the scoop. I mean, uh, this is a, a fascinating story. I'm not sure. My question is, how... How many people are dying to get a phone with facial recognition capabilities? I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool little thing, but I don't know. You ask me what I want an iPhone, and again, I've I've been buying them for iPhones, iPods, everything else for my kids for years. Give me a phone where the the screen doesn't crack when I drop it on the floor. Give me a phone that I can drop in the toilet or the, or and that lasts longer than six hours. Right, right. Where the battery doesn't start going. I mean, these these are what the, the innovations they. I personally, I think, and and what you know 
far be it for me. Again, these people are going to be lined up in yeah. tents to buy this thing. So uh, I am not your gauge for demand for the <laughs> Apple iPhone. I, I've been the guy that sits on TV asking the question, is this in? Is this the time? And, and it, it never is Dave Wilson. Well, it doesn't seem that way. And bear in mind, Apple is so dependent on the iPhone. Even last quarter, as you know, everybody was waiting for the iPhone 10. It still accounted for 55% of their revenue. Phenomenal. Yeah, and, and it's been as high as 70% in quarters where they're rolling out new devices. You know, it's interesting, Mike, that you mentioned the lines. One thing I remember when they brought out the iPhone 8, there was basically no line at Apple's Fifth Avenue store. People just weren't all that interested, it seemed because they knew that the iPhone 10 was coming. It was interesting to really see Apple kind of cannibalize its own sales by bringing out the the final version of what you could argue was the current phone yeah. before coming out with the the new one the truly new one in the tent. I've been convinced for a long time that they're paid actors. Um, of course, <laughs> I can't confirm that here at Bloomberg, so this is my opinion and certainly not of the institution at Bloomberg News, but um, I don't have a single person that's ever queued up for an Apple iPhone. They, they all have Northern California I, accents. I, I, do, Dave, do you know anyone that's queued up for an Apple iPhone? You can just order it from, from the telecommunication provider in the United States and in the UK. Why would you queue up for one? When you can go to Vodafone in the UK or because AT&T you want to take it overseas States. where it's not on sale yet, I don't oh, know. Come that on. is that is like yeah, a lot of Chinese people. In the, in the yeah, it's been I, done in the past anyway. Paid actors on the Dave Wilson <laughs> payroll, guys. You're sticking with me. Next up, the week ahead, the day ahead, an ECB decision around a corner. This is Bloomberg Radio. 